0: Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 900.
1: And 11 with Hillary Abel and Carolyn Burke. Cooperatives put the people who are members of that business at the center and it's serves their interests uh, first and foremost. What that means is that cooperative businesses are not commodities so you can't just buy and sell a co-op on, on the open share market it's they're really businesses that are meant to serve the people who are part of them the communities they're part of and if they have a social or environmental mission which many do they also will serve that purpose. <laughs>
0: This episode is brought to you by MyRestaurantCFO.com. MyRestaurantCFO partners with restaurants to simplify financial management by offering full-service bookkeeping, payroll, and CFO services. Beyond MyRestaurantCFO's understanding of all the things that ill and plague a restaurant, Restaurant MyRestaurantCFO realizes that restaurants are like snowflakes. No two are the same, so they avoid the cookie-cutter approach. My Restaurant CFO's goal is to be your partner in success by learning all there is to know about your business and putting together a custom solution that gives you only what you need and to be a guiding hand that helps you achieve your goals. Take action and go to cfocom slash unstoppable and when you use that link, you will get a one hour consulting session with the founder and partner, Miguel Miranda, also a past guest on the show. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered Buy an automated system, prevent lost customers, and impress your guests with pop menu answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month, plus, lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get your $100 off for your first month and to learn more about Pop Menu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. Stoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S.com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, co-founder, chief policy officer, impact officer of Project Equity, Hillary Abel. And joining Hillary, we have the founder of Niles Pizza company, Carolyn Burke. We're going deep into the subject of co-work spaces or worker co-ops uh whatever you want to call them uh i cannot this is a really interesting topic for me so i'm super excited for this conversation and uh, the reason why you guys are here specifically is because Corey rosin called you out uh when i had Corey on the show to talk about esops and uh, cory rosin was episode 845 so if you guys want to check out the story behind esops uh and store which is employee stock ownership programs and Corey's with the national center for employee ownership uh asked Corey, like, who, who should I talk to in regards to co-ops? And he said, you got to talk to Hillary. Then Hillary said, we got to bring on uh, Carolyn. And here we are. I cannot wait to dive in. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us?
1: Awesome. Great to be here, Eric. And my mantra is... In a cooperative, everyone can be a leader.
0: Ooh, in a cooperative, everyone can be a leader. Why did you choose to go with that quote today? Why does that resonate with you?
1: You know, I I was an employee owner in a cooperative in my early 20s, so about 30 years ago. And experience the ability to play leadership roles, even as kind of a young person who didn't know much about business, and I was learning on the job. Um, so it's not that everybody will manage the business together or make all decisions collectively. That's not what a cooperative means, although that is sometimes the case. But what it means is that they can be any worker owner can be elected to the board of directors can can bring that influence and impact that leaders have in whatever small or large way they want to because they have a voice and they own and govern the business.
0: Yeah. And I'm excited because I've, from what I understand, there's a lot of evidence supporting that employee owned operations are doing much better versus your traditional sole proprietor right now, as far as employee retainment and just finding employees in general uh, and just overall culture of the organization and happiness. I mean, think like these, these business models are scoring really high. And I know Carolyn, you, you said you wanted to mention a little quote as well. Like the, the quote for your, your company. I don't, I want to give we you a chance to.
2: <laughs> we have on our, on our banner, on our website, uh, just a quote from David Mamet, uh, uh, stress cannot exist in the presence of pie.
0: Mm. And,
2: uh, Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so. Yeah. Maybe a little stress <laughs> after you finish the pie, but not during the process. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> awesome. Pie I makes love life it. better. That's that our business.
2: We're not just a bakery. We are a stress relief organization.
0: I love it. So, um, <laughs> so back to what, where, what I was saying, uh, Corey said that you guys or, or the folks I needed to talk to. Um, I honestly left that conversation with Corey while I, I learned a lot. I also was a little discouraged because I realized that ESOPs are kind of out of reach for most business owners, uh, mostly because of the cost of legal expenses associated with it. Like over 100000 or right around $100,000 just to get started, which is hard for most people, which is why I started getting more and more interested in co-ops as an alternative. So... Before we get in, I mean, do you want to like shoot to 30,000 feet? Do you want to get anything up before we really start to to break down this this bulleted uh, list you gave me?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to just give a bit of an overview for for the folks listening and participating today and in the future about what broad-based employee ownership is. So at Project Equity and actually for a lot of people and organizations in the field of employee ownership, we define um, employee ownership as any business ownership model where every employee who meets just basic criteria, which is usually you know a certain amount of tenure, a modest amount of tenure between six months and two years in a business, any employee can then become part of the ownership. So there, there are three main kinds that Project Equity um, promotes and works with. One are the ESOPs that you heard so much about in Corey's episode, which was wonderful. That stands for employee stock ownership plan. We, we usually recommend that companies with 40 or 50 employees or more and a sort of net income or or EBITDA to use the technical term each year of, you know, half a million to a million dollars per year. And th- that's a significantly large company, right? So that they might consider ESOPs and you could be a cooperative at that larger size as well. But often because of the tax benefits and other reasons, um, larger companies will often consider ESOPs among the options and might, might tend to go that direction.
0: So real um, quick, that was 30 to 40 employees. And what was the total EBITDA?
1: Uh, half a million to a million dollars of EBITDA. Okay. Yeah, Got it. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of companies we work with have, you know, a million, two million dollars in revenue. So that's a very different size of company, I mean, 15, 20, 30, 50 employees. Um, and a cooperative is a great fit for a company of any size. In in Spain, there's a, a cooperative that's a conglomerate of 200 businesses, most of which are cooperatives themselves. And they have 100,000 employees. They're still a cooperative. But um, it's a great fit for small and medium-sized enterprises. Um, And we'll talk a lot about about worker cooperatives today. Um, And cooperatives are also very common in the U.S. There's about 40,000 of them. But many of those are credit unions or consumer cooperatives or farmer co-ops. And we're going to be talking about employee-owned or worker-owned cooperatives. Um, Then there's a third kind of employee ownership that's called an employee ownership trust, which is newer and not our topic today, but it can also be a good fit for a business of of any size and has, um, is more flexible than an ESOP, but uses a, a, trust model as well.
0: So we dove pretty deep into what ESOPs are. So again, I'd, I, I would advise you guys head over to restaurant com slash eight, four, five. Uh, really Corey does a great job breaking that down. Uh, but I am curious to ask what are the major differences between a co-op and an employee ownership trust?
1: So in a a cooperative the members of the cooperative or the employee owners directly own shares in the cooperative. Um, In an employee ownership trust like in an ESOP you have a trust that owns the shares on behalf of the employees so it's it's an indirect ownership model. Um, The other um, very unique feature of co-ops which can also be implemented in other businesses but is part and parcel of the cooperative model is that cooperatives are businesses that are not only owned, but also governed by their member owners. So that means that in a worker cooperative like like Carolyn's company, um, the the member owners who work in the company, to be a member, you have to work there, um, will elect the board of directors, uh, fill the majority of the seats on the board of directors, and um, make other really fundamental decisions as a group of owners. You can also have management in place. So, you know, you might have day-to-day operational decisions made very similar to how they would be in a non-cooperative business, Um, but you would have democratic governance and and worker ownership within that context. In in an EOT, an employee ownership trust, you would have um, indirect employee ownership, and it's an entirely flexible model where you may or may not have Um, democratic governance those employee owners may or may not have seats on the board so it's just a much more flexible model that can be um, calibrated any way you design it to be whereas in in cooperatives you also have a lot of options but it's fundamentally designed to be a business owned and governed by the member owners and it's part of an international global community of cooperatives around the world that follow uh, seven principles of cooperatives that are international.
0: Okay, so I'm gonna to try to regurgitate this and see if I've fully absorbed okay. the message. So, when it comes to cooperatives, uh, worker cooper worker cooperatives, it's mostly it is employee owned and employee governed. The major difference with the trust is that the trust owns the business. Um, I'm still not really entirely sure exactly what that even means, like what a trust is and how, is it like an entity that you just kind of like make up like an LLC that you say, this is a thing that makes decisions. Yeah. And is it like a legally, is it basically just like, is a uh, what's the word? Uh, is, does it take the liability off of the workers? Basically is that is what happening.
1: You know, um, here's where you're hitting up against my my knowledge barrier, and I'm I'm not a lawyer. I'm mm-hmm. I'm a cooperative expert and generalist, and an employee ownership generalist. I have an MBA, but I don't have you know law degree. So, so my we we refer and work with lawyers in in all of these transactions. Um, but the the short answer to your question, Eric, is that as I understand it, a trust is actually not an entity. Interestingly, so a okay. trust is just a trust. It's a legal form, um, and it has a trustee. And the trustee will name um, a board of directors for the company that it owns. Usually, um, so so there is this thing called a trust that that formally owns the business and holds the shares, and that has a trustee. Um, so it's just a very different structure, and there's a whole other body of law that's not corporate law, but that's trust law. And in these ESOPs and employee ownership trusts, you're kind of combining those two bodies of law together to create a ownership structure for a business.
0: Okay, so when it comes when you said that it, it's uh indirect employee ownership, the trust, the document, the, the thing, the piece of paper owns the company.
1: Yeah. And it owns all or part of the company. So it owns owns shares in the company and it with, with these trust models, it's fairly straightforward to do partial ownership and you could have individual shareholders or, or people owning the other part of the business. So in some ways ESOPs and EOTs can be useful for, Situations where an owner might be ready to move in the direction of full employee ownership or want to implement some employee ownership but still want to maintain control in order to get the business to a point of full stability if it's in a high growth mode or a startup mode or for some other reason or coming through COVID and still not entirely recovered. Um, so that's another way that trusts, um, ESOPs or employee ownership trusts can be a little different from cooperatives. Co-ops, you could do a a staged approach to becoming a cooperative, but it, it's less less usual. Usually, cooperatives are 100% owned by their members.
0: Got it. And I think the other variable there is, uh, with the trust, the workers aren't necessarily governing the the business.
1: That's right. When that's you say right. governing, you're saying employed.
0: basically shot calling decision making.
1: Right. They, they don't necessarily sit on the board of directors, um, but they could. You know, you could set it up specially to, to be that way, but it's not designed in automatically.
0: Okay. And I realize we weren't here. Like we mentioned uh, ESOPs is something I said, go check out episode 845. But what are the major differences between co-ops and ESOPs?
1: Yeah, so so similar to what I was just saying about employee ownership trusts, um, an ESOP is a a trust that is also a regulated retirement plan. So so, um, ESOPs company with ESOP ownership are um, and ESOPs themselves are highly regulated by a body of law called ERISA that was passed in the 1980s, and and it is a retirement plan. So an, an ESOP trust is essentially a retirement plan. And in some companies' functions, you know like a retirement benefit, when it owns 30% or more of the company, and um, you know, we're a big fan of 100% ownership, um, when it owns the whole company, it is also very much a cultural phenomenon and an, an ownership model where there are certain fundamental questions like if the business is going to be sold. Um, so, for example, New Belgium Brewing. Um, was a very famous and well known um, company that was 100% employee owned through an ESOP. And about two years ago, they sold to, I think it was Kieran International, if I'm remembering correctly, to a large multinational beer company. Um, and that was, you know, very disappointing to some in the employer ownership community. Um, some considered it a big success. I know the, the management considered it a very important business move for them. It's hard to be a mid sized brewery in today's beer world. Um, But the decision to sell, as I understand it, had to be voted on not only by the trustee, but by the employee owner. So that's what we call a pass-through, pass-through voting in an ESOP. So So is
0: traditionally the trustee the former owner?
1: No, actually, no. Um, Usually that would not not be the case. Um, Many ESOPs will have external professional trustees, and that is considered a best practice. Um, it's not mandated by law, but it is considered a best practice. And then sometimes smaller companies that maybe have a hard time affording the the trustee fees each year um, will have what they call internal trustees. It might be a CFO. It could be a committee. Um, and they have the responsibility of making sure the ESOP is on the legal up and up and um, you know doing the valuations appropriately every year. Uh, another major difference between an ESOP and a cooperative is that ESOP shares, um, the shares of an ESOP company must by law have a third party valuation every year to determine their value. So they're, they're not bought and sold on the open market and neither are co-op shares, but ESOP shares are valued according to market-based valuation principles. Um, co-op shares are not. So when you own a share of a cooperative, it gives you voting rights and the right to share in profits, but it doesn't give you the right to sell that share to someone else. Or to have that share appreciate and value. And one of the things I personally really love about the cooperative model, which has been my, um, you know, most of my career and is one of my, my big passions in life, is that um, cooperatives put, put the people who are members of that business at, at the center and it serves their interests uh, first and foremost. And um, what that means is that cooperative businesses are not commodities. So you can't just buy and sell a co-op on on the open share market. It's they're really businesses that are meant to serve the people who are part of them, the communities they're part of. And if they have a social or environmental mission, which many do, they also will serve that purpose.
0: Got it. And I'll be honest, the the, the, the cooperative, the workers cooperative is something that I'm interested in, in Restaurant Unstoppable, um, just because, I mean you can't do it alone and i mean i think this is a good point to kind of transition to what are the benefits of the employee-owned models specifically a a co-op
1: yeah why don't i i'll say a quick word about that because i've I've studied that and i love to speak about it but then i want to pass pretty quickly to carolyn because she can talk about the benefits uh for herself as a as a business owner and to to her co-workers and co-owners in the co-op um So so some of the benefits, cooperatives, there's a wide body of research, and it's true also for ESOPs. So employee ownership broadly, um, including in cooperatives, um, has benefits for for workers, for employees in the companies. There's a lot of evidence that job quality is higher. So so one study done by Corey's organization, the National Center for Employee Ownership, actually showed that a certain group of millennial age employee owners who were part of this large study reported 33% higher wages and almost double the household net worth of their peers who are working in companies that are not employee-owned. So that is one of, of many studies that have been done on on ESOPs. And there there are not as many studies on cooperatives, um, but there are, there the worker cooperative community is relatively small in the US, um, but there are studies um, internationally on worker cooperatives and on other kinds of co-ops. And like ESOPs, they tend to have longer business longevity. So there, So there's benefits for employees in terms of workplace satisfaction pay, um, you know, in benefits as well as profit sharing. And then there's also benefits for the businesses. They tend to be more profitable. They tend to survive longer as businesses than other companies in their industries. And we also see a lot of evidence that um, cooperatives and employee-owned companies invest more back in their communities because, you know, you can't really separate the community from the company when the employees own it. Um, or when the, the members who shop there own the cooperative. So there's, there's interesting um, data, for example, on the food cooperative industry, consumer food cooperatives, where those grocery stores will invest more back in their communities um, than, and will um, you know, contribute more to local charities, participate more in the local community, and um, be a, a broader part of their community than typical grocery stores in their communities. So it's worker benefit, business benefit, and societal benefit. So, um, and I'll put a link in the chat to the the paper I wrote called "The Case for Employee Ownership," which summarizes all the studies for someone who wants to know more about benefits but doesn't want to read a bunch of academic studies.
0: So, I mean, so worker benefit, company benefit, community benefit, uh, and yeah. I think the, I mean, it's un it's unsaid in what you what you just share with us, but also just generally speaking, I found that cultures tend to do better. But I mean, I think that is a, assumed when you hear better for the employee, better for the company. Obviously the culture is probably going to be great. But why is it that co-ops make such strong great cultures? What's going on there? What's a co- What do worker co-ops have or e- ESOPs or the trust? What do these things have? What's the juice that's going on there? What's that mojo that is lacking in the more traditional sole proprietor model?
1: The mojo is is that the people who work there own it and they have that. How does that, that matter? Sense? Yeah. Why does, why does ownership matter? Um, it's because it means you care. If you own something, like if, if you've rented and owned your house, there are exceptions to this, but most people, when they own their house, gonna, they're going to take better care of it and fix it up and make improvements and not defer that maintenance than they would if they're renting. The same goes, I think, with with a company. And so even if you own just a portion or you own it together with 10 other people or five or 20 or a hundred other people, You have that sense of pride and you have that sense of care and you're also learning how to look at the bigger picture. So we talk a lot about, um, the two hats that a, an employee owner will wear. So when I'm in my day job, you know, and and I want Carolyn to speak to this, but if I'm, you know, Carolyn's coworker, Sarah, you know, managing the kitchen and baking at Niles Pie Company, I'm wearing my baker hat. That's my employee worker hat. But then when I go to the board meeting, when I, when I step back and talk about some of the challenges we're facing at the business or how we can make it better, I'm wearing my owner hat. And it's a hybrid word, employee-owner, because you're not really one or the other. You're not a typical owner of a business. I think we probably have a lot of restaurant owners um, listening today, I hope. Um, and they're probably thinking, wow, I don't, I don't know if the, the person I hired last week or five years ago who you know, works in the front of the house or the back of the house, if they're going to be able to think like an owner like I do. But it's it's a little bit different from being a sole owner. You don't have to carry it all yourself. You don't have to do it all yourself. Um, but you do need to kind of really cultivate that sense of ownership and caring about the business as a whole, and not just about your own piece of it. Mm-hmm. Carolyn, would you would you speak to that? Why does ownership matter at at Niles Pie Company?
2: Sure. I, I you know I was thinking about this as as you were talking. Um, the purpose. So so Niles Pie Company started in 2010 and we became um, we transitioned to being a worker co-op in 2017. And before we were uh, a co-op and we, you know, we were a sole proprietorship owned by me. um, The purpose of the business was to make great pie and pastry um, and support me. Right. And the, and, and earn a profit for me. Um, And when we became a co-op, the purpose of the business changed and it became to make great pie and pastry and support the people who own and support all the owners and support the staff. Um, So it became part of the DNA of the business itself. All decisions in the business are based on the health of the business itself of the people who run the business so making you know great a great product is always number 1 and that is supported by the well-being and profit for the people who work there yeah and that's a fundamental difference between um a sole proprietorship or any other ownership structure that, that's not a worker co-op. Um, the, it's part of the definition and purpose of our business.
0: So it's, it's, it's baked into the, the yeah. fabric of the culture that this yes. entity exists to yeah. serve us all yeah. to, to make us all profit. It's not just to make right. me profit as a sole right. proprietor. So it's, it's, it's a little like psycho like psychological. It's a, it's, and I think, yeah, the, uh, i can 't help but think of the great game of business too that 's an amazing book Jack Stack, and they started talking mm-hmm. about uh just the idea of the, the the game of business is getting people out of their silos out of their little right. vertical within the the organization. Your job is x right. and just do x but yeah. when you say your job is X and also you have stake in the business and this is what happens when you do your job X really well and how your job impacts your yeah. total profitability. Like yeah. when, when, when they know that their effort directly controls the overall profitability and they have a, like they have an influence on that and they know how their influence is. It, I think yeah. it makes people show up differently. You want your race, go get it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, yes, I think it's, absolutely. it's a shift. It's 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 uh, it's almost like opening up the door of what's the word I'm looking for um autonomy, autonomy, like, like, we yeah, want a to- yeah, like,
1: absolutely. In like autonomy. an indirect way. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, and absolutely. Self-determination, self-determination yep. and yeah. mutual support. So it's kind of yep. like both that that individual piece becomes stronger, that sense of personal investment and care, yeah. but it also yeah. is an issue of mutual support. So you're kind of getting the benefit of both of those things. I'm not just thinking about myself thinking yeah. about the business as a whole yeah. and thinking about the well-being of all of my it's collective
0: my autonomy which yeah. is yeah. weird i mean that sounds it
2: sounds very rosy and i i know from a i'm thinking about restaurant owners and, and small business owners listening to this going well that's all well and good i mean that's lovely but i don't see the you know that wouldn't work in my situation right because you look at your staff and you think, oh, no, every, nobody's going to do it like me. Nobody's going to love it like me. So, and that, I mean, that, that's huge. That's a big. It's education and 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 designing your business in a way and and with leadership and educating staff at every step of the way. So let's let's and, go and chronologically yeah. back to
0: 2017 when you make this choice sure. to become a, a workers' co-op. What what were the biggest challenges for you? What were the biggest fears for you?
2: Well, the biggest fears were really who's going to love it as much as me. I mean, you know, and and who's going to, who's going to, what, what, you know, how is that, how's that even going to work? How, how the heck is that even going to work? I mean, that I, 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 um, I founded the company with not necessarily a cooperative in mind, but I'm. I'd, owned, um, I'd worked in bakeries my whole career and, and had owned a bakery before that um, you know, was successful and did well, and, um, but I didn't have an exit plan. Um, and you can't do it alone. And when I um, decided it was time to, to go, I did sell the business. But it didn't it, – I hadn't built it in a way that – I had built it around me. And, and so much of the business had to do with um, my personality and my, you know, sheer force of will and working a million hours a week. Um, and so it just caved. Um, it only lasted another year after I sold it, and that was the end of that. And all that blood, sweat, and tears that I put into it, I didn't want to go through that again.
0: Wait. so This um, is a different company. Before, yeah, this was
2: a different company. This okay. was twenty years Got in it. the past, and, and and so when I started Niles Pie, um, I did not want it to be World of Carolyn. I wanted it to be a business um, that was fundamentally run by you know by a group of people, so that I could have a day off, and so that it could grow. You get to a point in a business that you have to grow past what you can do yourself and, and even past what your imagination can do. I can't think of everything that the business needs. Um, you need a certain amount of humility as an owner um, to, to be able to do that and be able to grow enough to trust your staff and hire people who um, want that, who want to learn and who want to be better than you. Um, and, and let that happen and nurture it. Um, so that's, that's how, that's how it came about. And then when it was time to really start talking about it, um, you know, staff had no idea what I was talking about (laughs) and, and we're hesitant too. like, wait, why do we want to do what you're doing? You know, better, better to just have a day job and go home and forget about your work. Um, but then, You know, if you're in the restaurant industry or the bakery industry or any food service, um, you know, the only way you really get a vacation is to quit. (laughs) You know, that's like, that's if you are a cook, if you're a baker, the only way you get time off if you work for a small independent place is to quit because you don't get time off Um, and you don't, there's no break. So, um, you know, how many people have quit because they want to go to their cousin's wedding? you know, and, and they can't, you know, they can't get that time off. Um, which is not to say that everybody gets to have the time off they want at our shop.
0: (laughs) right? Um, But I hear what you're putting down, but I'm curious when you're going through this transition of sole proprietor to co-op, what were your specific challenges with that? What, what, what was hard about that transition or what was surprisingly easy about that transition?
2: Um, what was hard was changing, I mean, a bunch of it was hard, it wasn't easy, um, was changing the mindset really of solving every problem immediately. Um, you do definitely have to solve um, problems on the fly, you know, your, your walk-in goes, you have, you know, vendor issues, and whatever, all the, all the things that are completely immediate, that doesn't change. But governance issues, questions of structure, agreement on pay rates, um, agreement on job descriptions—all those things. Making those decisions, you have to learn how to get everybody's opinion, how to how to keep everybody in the loop, um, and talk through those kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm. And and uh, the the learning curve on that was. You know, so much of training staff to be able to make those kinds of decisions, but also learning that in a cooperative, it may take longer to make the decision to get the buy-in from people, but then it's easier to implement and it's more likely to succeed. So why is it easier to
0: implement? What's the, what makes it easier to implement? Is it because, I don't want to say it. But I have ideas. But you say, why, why is it easier to implement?
2: Even, even if not everybody necessarily agrees on the decision, they understand how you got to that decision and they had input in getting there. So you don't have to run it by consensus. I mean, it's all lovely when that works. But as long as everybody has been included and understands what the process was um, to get there, then they have trust in the decision and, ha- and are more willing to help make it happen. Got it. Uh, so so you know, you decide to to eliminate a position. Um, it's not just some random management decision. You know, as somebody who works there that there's been thought put into it and that their job's well-being was included in that in that thought yeah. process. Yeah. Go ahead. I really uh, agree
1: with I really agree with that. Um you know the first major report i wrote about uh, about cooperatives was in in 20 published in 2014 and i remember interviewing a guy named Blake Jones from a company called Namaste Solar which is in mm-hmm. Colorado they're now in three different states new york and california as well and they've co-founded a purchasing cooperative called Amicus Solar Cooperative with, I I don't know, 20 or 30 independent solar companies that are part of it. So this is a a sort of game changing leader in the cooperative movement. And he said very much what you said, Carolyn, just authentically, Mm -hmm. that sometimes our decisions take longer to make.
0: Mm -hmm. um,
1: But overall, from beginning to end, we need to make a decision about an important issue. We need to implement that decision. Um, it actually can go faster. Oftentimes yeah. it does. And as Carolyn said, the results are better. And yeah. so I do want to emphasize it in, in worker co ops So Carolyn's company is, um, I think you shared, Carolyn, you have five um, employee owners and about 10 mm-hmm. employees right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's a pretty typical size for a worker cooperative. Um, but there are significantly bigger ones like Namaste Solar, I think, has Maybe 100 or so employee owners, um, uh, a company that Carolyn knows well because um, they worked alongside Niles Pie with Project Equity um, to implement their, their transition to a worker co-op. It's called A Slice of New York, and it's New York pizza in the Bay Area. So they're right. here in Northern California, um, like I am. So they have about 30 Between 30 and 35 employees at a given time, and about 17 of those are their cooperative worker owners. Mm -hmm. They have a general manager who was the original owner of the company, Kirk Vartan. Mm -hmm. Um, So he makes a lot of day-to-day operational decisions, but he has a really open participative management style. So so there is a difference that's really important in cooperatives of management, governance, Mm -hmm. and leadership. And when I opened with that leadership quote, what I meant was leadership is a very fluid, almost a liquid that flows throughout a living entity, you know, um, and anyone can exercise and demonstrate leadership in a, in a cooperative, but you still have a management structure. You still have a board of directors that does the governance decision-making, and those are kept separate. Got it. Mm-hmm. So Ellen cool. talked about all the buy-in that they get for a lot of their decisions. That would especially be true for, for really important um, decisions that have longstanding impact and affect mm-hmm. everybody. That might be made at the board level. Um, but in a smaller company like Carolyn, some of those operational decisions might have more input. But I just want folks to know that most cooperatives are not what I'd call collectives. So it's not a really? lot of like every decision has to have input from everybody and it takes months to make any any small decision. That's actually not the case. Um, management is still you know, yeah. can is more participatory, I would say, in general, because the culture mm-hmm. is more humane and more open to everybody's ideas, Got but the management um still exists yeah and-
2: that's I mean we're we're
1: organized our management structure didn't
2: change um for. Well, really up until
0: COVID. Um, So That's more. I'm really interested. I was actually holding back on questions around the management structure and what that looks like, because I know Mm -hmm. that that's the next thing we're going to be talking about. We're transitioning Mm -hmm. nicely into that. But before we get into the management structure and what that looks like. I'm really curious about this and I feel like it fits really well off of what we're talking about as far as the fears and the benefits and the challenges. What are the myths? What are the biggest reasons why people don't want to get involved with co-ops? What is it that what's the narrative they're telling themselves?
1: <laughs> we have a project equity. We we work with about 20 companies at any given time, somewhere along this journey. I mean, we talk to hundreds of business owners every year. This is my nonprofit organization that supports companies through these transitions, um, and they're about, you know, a handful of myths that we always like to bust. So <laughs> the first one is what I just said, you know, people often assume if it's a cooperative, it means everybody has to make every decision together and there's lots and lots of meetings and in the restaurant industry that could kill yeah. a business. Cause I know yeah. you all move fast and you don't have a lot of margin for error. You're delivering delicious things to people to eat right then and there. Um, so, so that is a myth, you know, it, you can have a hierarchical management structure, or, you know, you can have any kind of management structure within a cooperative, but you need to have mm-hmm. that democratic governance and shared ownership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, another myth is a lot of people think, you know, oh that's that's just for hippies or that's just for socialists. Just for specialists, just for specialists <laughs> um, you said for socialists. Socialists. <laughs> some people associate cooperatives with um, you know, left politics. And there there can be that overlap for for some people and some co-ops, but um, Employee ownership and even cooperatives um, is actually they're both ideas that cross the political spectrum. Um, these are strong businesses first and foremost, operating in a market economy. Um, so you know, whether you think of it as as capitalist, socialist or none of the above or both um, is really irrelevant. These are these are private businesses that are operating and competing effectively in the marketplace. Um, and a lot of people in, um, you know, if you go to the agricultural co-op meetings, you're going to see farmers from Iowa, you know, who who might be voting very differently than the the people at Rainbow Grocery in San Francisco. Um, so, and it's not like a buying club in your aunt's garage in the 1970s. You know, these are these are effective uh, businesses in all kinds of industries.
0: Mm -hmm. so So those those, are are the the two myths Uh, assume that everybody is all in on the decisions which just makes it slow and painful uh and then also that is for a bunch of hippies and socialists uh Mm -hmm. i would i would wonder if the the biggest challenge is it's not as profitable i'm here to make money i'm here to to be the sole proprietor and to get rich and how the hell am i going to do that if i'm sharing my money with everybody it's probably a narrative you guys hear often is that am i making that up
1: you know um Go ahead,
2: Carolyn. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. I mean, you know, it's, it's the money is the money, but how long do you want your business to survive? I mean, if you're a small, for us, it made absolute sense. We we're a small business um, that wasn't, I mean, the only way it's going to get me rich, the only way it was going to get me rich is by, Paying as little as possible to staff, um, or and and even that that wasn't going to make me rich. I mean, maybe Nabisco would come along and buy us or something, and then I would get rich. But that's that's not. It's not really likely.
0: Yeah. Um, what about scalability? Small, Does it make it difficult to scale?
2: Hmm, no, I mean, there's not the business model. I mean, honestly, it makes it easier to scale. Cause we have more people with the skills to, to take on management roles. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah.
0: I just realized we never took a break to thank our sponsor. So we're going to do that right now and we'll come right back to pick up the conversation where we left off and the, and the kind of the talk about why I think these are myths and that I think how you could probably be more profitable if you choose to go this way. This episode is brought to you by myrestaurantcfo.com. My restaurant CFO exists because their experience over the years has revealed all the frustrations, bottlenecks, and pain points restaurant owners experience when managing their establishment. Beyond their understanding of all the ills that plague the restaurant industry, my restaurant CFO realizes that restaurants are like snowflakes. No two are the same. So they avoid the cookie cutter approach. My restaurant CFO Bo's goal is to be your partner in success by learning all there is to know about your business and putting together a custom solution that gives you only what you need and to be the guiding hand that helps you achieve your goals. My restaurant CFO partners with restaurants to simplify financial management by offering full service bookkeeping payroll and CFO services. Spending more on a CFO will actually improve your profitability and help you achieve a better work-life Balance with my restaurant CFO, you'll be able to focus your time on positive customer experiences. Always know how your money is working for you and where you can save. No learning curve and no more late nights trying to make sense of your financial ecosystem. When you partner with my restaurant CFO, they'll provide accurate weekly and monthly reporting, trend analysis for easy forecasting, improved control over vendor costs, complete financial analysis, and recommendations source from over 30 years of operational experience and 10 years of consulting experience on how to save more money. If you're ready to start making the right decisions for the growth of your business, your call to action is to go to myrestaurantcfo.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you will get a one hour consulting session with the founder and partner of myrestaurantcfo.com, Miguel Miranda, also a past guest on the show. That's my slash unstoppable. All right, we're back. The last question I asked you ladies was what, what are the myths? We talked about how people think that it slows down decision making, how people think it's just for a bunch of left left, you know, socialists and hippies. Um, we I mean, and then the last question I ask you is, is this as profitable? And here's why I think it's as profitable, if not more profitable, because we were as we're learning, I mean, as you're seeing right now taking place across restaurants is the great resignation. People don't want to work in the industry anymore, and people want to be seen and treated like true professionals. And I feel like if you're going to be the best, you need to attract the best and the best way to get the best, the most serious people is to offer them stake in the business equity in the business. And, and you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with. So if you're trying to get top tier talent and you want to attract on the most passionate, serious individuals, you got to offer more than a paycheck and security. You have to offer a sense of purpose you know, like mm-hmm. this is your purpose. This is why you're put on this planet to be a, to, to do the thing you do. And I want you to do that thing for me. Here's a piece of the pie. Yeah. And you're going to get people so we, to sh- show up so much different and, and maybe you're sharing profit, but the pie, a slice of a big pie shared is way better than a small pie by yourself.
2: Mm-hmm. We just make the pie bigger.
0: Yeah, exactly. Just
2: make the pie bigger. I I I have an anecdote that I'm um, just a couple of weeks ago. I'm, um, we were we were heading off to a meeting, and um, I haven't. Um, I can tell you more about my personal situation, but I actually don't even live nearby anymore. I'm I'm still involved in the business, and I just do a lot of back end stuff from from Oregon. Um, and and I came down for a meeting, and um, we were driving along and, and uh, just talking about how everybody's gotten through COVID and and survived this. And um, I said, you know, the, you know, the thing is with with our shop. You know, we pay a lot better. We've been able to do some really good profit sharing, even through COVID. Um, we've done really well. However, it's still not going to buy you a house. I mean, no matter what you do, our industry is not a great paying industry. It just isn't. There's only so much you can get out of it. And um, our kitchen manager, who's one of our owners, said, "Yeah, okay, that's that's absolutely true, but." I now have business. I have so many more skills than before we became a co-op. She's Now I can look at, um, this is my career, and I can look at my career in a number of different ways, whether I stay with this company in the long term or not. Now I've got business skills, and now I can, I can also change my job within and not have to leave this company. You know, I can I can take on new roles, I can train up my replacement, I can do more, you know, if I want to go more into the business end of things, I can do that. There's a it's easier to see yourself with this business for the long term, which is only great for the business
0: yes and I want to bookmark this because what you're alluding to right now is something I wanted to talk about when we were about to wrap up the conversation is this idea of what's the future of the restaurant industry and, right. and, and co-ops look like I have some thoughts that really support what you're sharing right now but before I, I feel we, really
2: strong about that. yeah <laughs> but before before we
0: dive into what what you're sharing i think we need to kind of break down what is the 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 framing what is i think um uh how are they structured we didn't really get deep into the structure of what these look like and that's next on our on our to-do list so we talked a little bit about structure we talked about how there's management we talked about how there's government and then we talked about how there's leadership is that are those like the three pillars right there
1: yeah, I, the, yeah. The ownership structure, which in a cooperative includes how do you define membership? How does one become a member of the cooperative? That's part of the structure. Um, then the governance structure is really how big is the board of directors? How many seats are on it? Um, exactly how is its role defined? And usually most boards have a, you know, common certain things they do. So that's fairly straightforward. Do you have any outside people on the board of directors or is it all employee owners? Um, that's the, the governance model. And then there is the management model. So do you have a general manager? Do you have, you know, supervisors or a management structure? Um, and often at project equity, when we help companies transition, we'll help them design like a decision matrix or a, um, kind of a clear definition of, you know, what are what are management and operational decisions? What are governance decisions that the board makes? And what are the, usually a fairly small number of decisions that all of the worker owners will make? And those are things like, we're gonna move the location of our restaurant. Like this is where I come to work every day. This is key to our business plan. Like if we're gonna move that or if we're gonna sell or close the company, or change the ownership structure, change the membership criteria. Those would be the you know, some of the few really big picture decisions that all of the owners would make together versus the board. So those are the key design components of a cooperative and things that we do when we're helping a company become a cooperative. How is membership structured? Um, how is the board structured? And how is management structured? Um, leadership is more of a, you know, a philosophy and a living practice and a culture. So it's, it's less about definitions and more about how you live out that that cooperative life in the the day to day and the month to month experience of your your okay.
0: business Okay. I'm a little confused, I'm not going to lie. So <laughs> we have we have Sorry. board of directors, we have members yeah. and we have what am I missing? Management. Management. So yeah. how is how are members different than board of directors?
1: Well, that's a really key piece, Eric, and thank you for asking that so clearly. So um, I'll use sort of a, a generic cooperative with with 30 people as an example. And then Carolyn can talk more about her structure if you want to at Niles Pie Company. Mm-hmm. So in this this generic cooperative of 30 people, say we were we started off as a business owned by one person. We became a cooperative. We didn't want to force everybody to become members of the co-op because we didn't want to, like, you know, force anybody out who didn't want to take that on. Or um, so So membership is optional. Um but we have the majority of our employees are members. That's really an important part of a, a cooperative, is that the majority of um the workers in a worker co-op are are member members. When owners. you're saying they
0: have member when they're members, they own percentage in the business.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's they they own a um a share, which gives them the right to vote on issues that the members vote on. Does the share most, change what, in value? No, it doesn't. It doesn't change in value, which is why I don't like to say they own a percentage, because it's not that like it's not equity. If they were to sell, they would get X percent of the sale price. It's it's a little bit different than that. Um, it's
0: not equity. They don't own equity in the business, or do they own equity in
1: the business? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they they own a share. So so if I'm a member of this thirty person, let's call it a restaurant that um, that I'm describing, that's become a cooperative, and I'm a server at that restaurant, um, I make the choice to become a member because I qualify. I've been there for a year already. I'm a worker in good standing. I've had good performance reviews. I'm going to stick around. Um, I've paid my $500 buy-in amount, or I've kind of enabled the company to start to deduct that over time from my paycheck. So that enables me to become a member. I've met the criteria, I've been approved for membership, and I've paid my buy-in. That's Mm -hmm. a unique thing to a co-op that that ESOPs and Employee Ownership Trusts don't have. So member equals owner. Yes. Member equals owner. Got it. Yep. And, and then in this case, I, I decide that I want to run for the board of directors um, okay. and we have five seats on our board of directors and four of them are employee owners. And then we have one person from outside who's this guy who is a CPA and really knows a lot about finances and brings that extra expertise for us. So um, my 20 of our 30 employees became members of the co-op and we have our election um, next month. I'm running for the board. I get to vote for the other people who are running. I get elected. Um, Then I attend my quarterly board meetings and we vote on the annual budget. And we do an annual performance review of our general manager. And we make major decisions like we need to take out a loan, um, a major loan. So the board needs to approve that. So, but I'm one of four employee owners who are on the board who got elected by my peers. There are 16 other people who are employee owners who are not on the board does that make more sense so
0: you have so say I have a business it's a co it's a it's a workers cop or a workers co-op it has employees that aren't yes. members they're just they're, they are employees of the company and then the next tier is members who are employees that own a, a, a stake in the business yeah and those members vote typically to elect board of directors. That's
2: right. The board
0: of directors make the big decisions, loans, uh, rebranding, h- hiring and s- firing like CEOs, maybe.
1: Yes. Hiring and firing general a CEO manager. or general manager, but Got not no. their hiring and firing. So the, the general manager would hire and fire Keep on players. an ordinary basis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: And is there a tier above that?
1: Um, yeah, just the board. Nothing above the board. Got it. Okay.
0: I think yeah. I'm good. Now, what, what, what a, one, go ahead.
1: Sorry. I say one,
2: there's two things about employee ownership um, that I think is common, um, and it may not be universal, but um, one thing that I, I think is pretty universal is one owner, one vote everybody has an equal vote. So regardless, you can be um, an employee owner at Niles Pie Company and be a dishwasher. Um, and you can be an employee owner at Niles Pie Company and be the head baker. Um, but you each, and, and say you're both on the board of directors, um, you have one vote and your vote carries equal weight. So yeah. regardless of your position, you're, you're one person, one vote. The other piece is the profit sharing is based on hours worked. It is not based on your, your wages may be based on um, different companies do this differently, but your way at our company wages are based on seniority and uh, skills, expertise, et cetera. Um, But your profit sharing is based on hours worked. So if you work 40 hours a week as a dishwasher and you work 40 hours a week as a baker, you're going to have the same profit sharing so that is profit
0: sharing is on top of salary
2: yes it is yeah yeah so so as a sole proprietor any profit from the company went in my pocket i paid taxes for it and it went on my merry way right in a um in a worker cooperative all the profit is shared by the owners equally whether they're a member a member of the board um Regardless, it doesn't matter if you are a a member owner of a worker cooperative, you share profits equally based on the hours that you put in. Got it. So work is valued the same for that for profit sharing.
0: So there's a set salary. So, okay, let me take a step back. I use a business um, money management system called Profit First. Are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No. No. So it's this idea that you just take your profit first. Yeah. Yeah, So it's Mm -hmm. like,
1: okay. okay. So it's Uh
0: like, it says the whole purpose of having a business is to earn a profit from it. Right. Right. Sure. Um, so whatever it is that you need to be happy and healthy, take that first. Everything Mm -hmm. thereafter goes into scaling your business. But Mm -hmm. it's this idea of like, this is what you need. This is your starting point. Um, Mm -hmm. and it, it helps you kind of, prioritize what you need in your life to get started. So like if you need more, then it's time for you to, to size down and get rid of all the things you have and have it as minimalistic as pof- possible lifestyle. So you can take the profit you need and it helps you scale thereon. So in mm-hmm. that, like with the way I have mine set up is 10% of everything I make goes straight to my profit account. I never touch mm-hmm. that unless I'm buying an asset, unless I'm investing mm-hmm. in something, but it goes to profit and then there's owners pay which is separate from profit, but that's 40% of all the money that comes in, goes in the owner's pay Um, Mm -hmm. and what you're saying. So if, and then there's operational expenses and taxes and things like Mm -hmm. that at 20% and like 30%. So Mm -hmm. I would have owners pay and that would be there to pay the owners. And then there's a separate account or a separate percentage profit that gets split up between everybody who has stake me- all the members mm-hmm. split that up based on how many hours they work that week or month. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or a year, sometimes or a year. And that, yeah, we do it annually or yeah. a
0: year. And that's, yeah. and that's equal no matter who or where you land in that spectrum of member. You could be the dishwasher yeah. or the executive chef.
1: Yep. Uh, yep. That's that is generally the the concept. And as, as Carolyn mentioned, there are some there is some variety in how cooperatives will do yeah. that. In some cases they'll combine like have a, a formula that will combine salary and hours worked. Uh, yeah. some will integrate tenure, but you know, it depends yeah. on the whether you really want to have sort of more of an egalitarian approach to the profit sharing, which is kind of inherently there, or if you want to layer in some some salary differential. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, generally, it's meant to be like we might get paid different amounts, you know, throughout the year. And that's based on, you know, what what you might make if you go somewhere else, it might have something some relationship to kind of market rate pay for the position that you're in, yeah. um, mm-hmm. or have some other reason for for being differential. Um mm-hmm. But then in the profit sharing, we're acknowledging that, as Carolyn said, you know, all work is valued here. We can't, we can't have a successful bakery without a dishwasher, right? Or without yeah. having our dishes washed. So, so yeah, that's, that's roughly the concept is that the profit sharing, um, the, the, the cooperative principle is usually stated as like, it's called patronage is the formal term for co-op profit sharing for members. Um, and it's it's because to the degree that you patronize the business. So a lot of people know about REI. I like to use this example, the outdoor sporting goods retailer. I'm a member.
0: I own. I'm, I'm one of them. Right. <laughs>
1: exactly. Me, me, too. Me, too. And, and the year that my wife and I bought kayaks at REI. We got a big patronage dividend. We got a lot of money back from REI because we'd spent a lot of money at REI. But the year that I just bought socks or energy bars or you know a, a t-shirt, I didn't get very much back. So because I had patronized it more that year, I got more back. And so in a worker cooperative, the the corollary is, I work full time, so I'm going to get more in profit sharing than the person who works half time because I put more in. I put more of my labor into the business. Got it.
0: Um, so is it safe to say? or I don't know if this is, is this a misconception or do I understand based off of what I've learned today? It seems um, almost intuitive that the goal is to have as few members as possible. If I'm trying to increase my profit.
2: No. And that's, that's, I mean, um, maybe Hillary can speak more to this, but um, there is a built in disincentive to grow because exactly that, like why the fewer members you have, but it depends on how you're structured. Um, uh, you can, uh, whether you're an LLC or a corporation, and how that's how how you um, split profits. But um, we added in a a, a, a percentage as a um, uh, as an incentive as a growth incentive. So founders um, get a percentage more um, for a for two year period after new people come in. Um, they get just a tiny bit more to encourage growth. So that because what can happen is you get to the point where the people who have founded the company um, have put in all this work before the company's profitable. Um, and, you know, maybe you get to the point where you've paid off all your loans and then you have a leap in, in profitability um, for the, the, the new people coming in are going to reap more um, as a percentage, as a ratio over time than the founders. So it's common to put in a, a time, a time limited incentive for the business to grow and bring on more owners, um, and we've done that. And that's been a successful thing so that people who have put in the work for the first couple of years, um, that they have an incentive to bring on more people yeah. and, and to continue growing the business.
1: Yeah. And, and Eric, I think that's that's a really good question. I'm glad you yeah. brought it up because in, in addition to that, um, you know, creative approach that, that Carolyn is describing that's designed to incentivize growth, there's two other things I want to add in. One is that with a lot of businesses, coming back to that, Metaphor of the pie, right? Mm-hmm. As the business grows, the the pie will grow, and so there will be more more profit to be had just by virtue of having a bigger engine of profit. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, it can sometimes become an issue that that certain cooperatives will rub up against that, like the existing owners might be disinclined to let more in as owners. But generally, that can be avoided just by having clear, um, you know, having having good leadership and culture in the co op, and also having clear um Rules and agreements um, and in your bylaws usually, about how membership is structured. So a very common structure, um you know, to use the theoretical example I gave where I'm a employee owner at a restaurant cooperative with thirty employees. The criteria for me that I, was that were that I had to be working at that business for a year. I had to be a full-time worker, which was defined as 30 hours a week. And I had to be a worker in good standing and willing to do what's required of a member, pay my buy-in, participate in the member meetings twice a year, that kind of thing. Um, so, so you can tell there, you know, um, objectively, who is meeting that criteria and who isn't. And so the idea is that, you know, more people should be brought in when when they qualify for membership. So it's not that that's a non-issue, but I think the, the bigger picture issue there is that, um, often there is a straightforward path to when someone can become a a member owner. Um, and also that you have that shared incentive to grow the business more. And when you have that ownership mentality, you're going to contribute better to make the business more profitable and, and larger. Yeah, I got that.
0: So what are typical, um, how do you determine the buying like rate how do you like like how do you say like how do you know the value of that
1: yeah that's a really interesting part of of this work um and it's interesting for two reasons one is because it's something that people who are um in the process of designing their own cooperative like to think a lot about like what's the right amount for us for our cooperative the other reason it's interesting is um after having worked with you know dozens of cooperatives now in my in my career i've been um, you know, part of one co-op as a worker owner, as I mentioned many years ago, and then for about 20 years, I've been, you know, involved in developing cooperatives. Um, it really doesn't matter that much, the buy-in amount, in my opinion. So what where are you going? Choose, to, is it just served
0: as a filter, basically, like to, to gauge? Yeah. Like, you're not, it's not going <laughs> towards like any, like, is it covering legal fees and make them like, what is it? Is it going towards anything?
1: Yeah, I mean, generally it usually goes sort of towards your working capital. And, mm-hmm. and if you have a structure where you don't have any outside funding and that's your only source of working capital, um, you know, other than your, your revenue, your business revenue, you, you may need to put it higher. But often it, you know, we, we work with companies that are already successful and have revenue to transition to cooperatives. So, so they are often able to, you know, pay off their loans just through their future income. And in that case, it's sort of another source of a reserve fund or working capital. Um, but there they're two philosophies. So so there is a wonderful cooperative in the in the green building industry um on Martha's Vineyard. And I'm not remembering the name right now, I'm sorry to say. Um, It'll probably come to me later, Um, but they've been around a long time. They, they wrote a book. um, I think it's called the company we own or something, the company we keep. I think it's called uh, by John Abrams is the name of the original founder of the company. Um, And I think their buy-in is something like $10,000 or maybe even higher, which is, is high in the world of worker cooperatives. And their reason for that is they really want people who um, really want to take a higher end of the spectrum in terms of their their owner role. It's less of the hyphen worker owner, and I, I vote for the board, and it's more of like, I show up in that ownership type of mentality every day, and they have more of a flat management structure too. So Ownership and management are more closely related in their company, so they really want people to have been there a long time and to really put in their own finances to, to become an owner. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where part of the reason you are a cooperative is you really want to democratize the ownership of your business and you want more people to participate. So you set the bar lower. So I used to work with them um, for about 10 years. I worked with um, um, cooperatives owned by immigrant women and they were cleaning cooperatives. Or right now I'm working with a community outreach co-op in San Francisco that a, a local nonprofit helped us start or ha- has been starting Um, And usually that buying is $400, $500 and they can pay it through payroll deduction. So you don't need to have a lot of cash in hand if you're trying to help lower wage workers get access to ownership and then the profit sharing that comes with that. So it just depends on your philosophy. There's really no right answer. And it's not the main engine of the business's capital usually. And that's why you have that flexibility of making it more or less.
0: Got it. So I think we're at a good point to start transitioning towards this idea. If we've been listening to this and we're a restaurant owner or leader and we're thinking about, you know, considering an employee ownership, like what's next? Like what do we do?
1: Well, the first thing folks can do is I invite folks to to call us at Project Equity or to book a consultation with us, because that's what we do. Um, I have a a team of colleagues on our business development team who, like I said, talk to hundreds of business owners a year, and you can book a free consultation on our website. And really, that's a usually about a half hour conversation where our, our team will sort of answer your basic questions, we'll learn a little bit more about your business and ask you about your your goals as an owner your exit timeline if you're planning on exiting or if you're wanting to stay in the business but still consider employee ownership as part of it both are possible um and they'll ask you a little bit about sort of the nature of the business your profitability and that kind of thing um so that's a good way to start if you're if you're seriously interested you know go ahead and call up my colleagues and we're we're happy to spend a little bit of time with you um if you're not ready for that yet um there will and there's also other organizations you can talk to of course um but there's also a lot of information out there on on the web. So um, we've been part of establishing a new campaign to raise awareness about employee ownership. And it's called Employee Ownership Equals or EO Equals. So there's an, a website called employeeownershipequals.org, I believe it is. And that's where you can go get kind of, you know, information that was really targeted specifically for a business owner who's just wanting to learn the basics, really not ready to talk to anybody yet. Um, and we also have a lot of case studies. Um Carolyn's coworkers, Toto and Sarah, and Niles Pye both have interviews on our website. Um, Carolyn's story, we have about uh, forty other business case studies of business owners. Um, employee owners, companies that have become employee-owned, and also financing case studies. So if you're Mm -hmm. curious, like, how could I get funding to help me essentially sell my business to a worker cooperative or convert Mm -hmm. it into an ESOP, um, we do have a couple of publications that talk about financing and articles you can read. So there's a lot to learn just starting out on that learning journey or just calling up someone like Project Equity that can help you take that first step.
0: So what about, what kind of questions should we be asking yourself around our own financial expectations and transition goals? Like what, what does that look like? What should we be asking ourselves?
1: Yeah, well, the, let, let me answer that. And then Carolyn, you know, please, please weigh in because you've been through this mm-hmm. business owner. Um, mm-hmm. I, have, me, I have some
0: follow-up questions for you, Carolyn. Don't you worry.
1: Ah, okay. <laughs> yes, I can talk from like the, you know, broad, having talked to a lot of business owners and Carolyn can tell it from personal experience. Um, so we we like to encourage business owners to do what, you know, most of them are already doing, but to think about, you know, what are your expectations for a sale price? This is not giving away your business. You know, cooperatives are not charities, right? They're not nonprofit organizations. They're businesses, and um, they should be sold. If you've got a strong business and you want to convert it to a cooperative, there will usually be a sale involved. So thinking about, like, what are your expectations? And then also thinking about, um, you know, how do my expectations compare to, um like situations you know so we we do find you know we're based in the san francisco bay area close to silicon valley so we do find a lot of business owners coming with these sort of tech industry expectations like i should make 10 times ebitda or you know five times revenue or you know whatever it might be and most small and medium-sized enterprises are not selling for that kind of multiple so one of the things we often have to do is like help business owners learn about you know what what contributes to the sale price of a business and um, just start to think about their own. So it's a personal question. You know, what do I need for my, for many business owners, it's their retirement plan. It might be their only retirement plan. So of course, it's critically important that you get a fair value when you sell your business. And so so we'd like to help you think about kind of the the psychological and practical side of it for yourself. And also just kind of what, start to learn about what would be a, a market rate sale price for my business. Mm-hmm. Um, we also like people to think about, you know, Exit timeline. Like, again, are, are you wanting to stay with this business for another 10, 20 years? Do you see yourself continuing on? And employee ownership could still be part of that future with you there. Um, or if you're, if you're wanting to exit, um, what's your timeline for that? And we, we love to talk to people when it's at least two years out, if not, you know, three to five years. But, um, a real a real sweet spot if you're ready to start working on it is you know plan on leaving about two years from when you start thinking about this whether you're selling through a business broker a private sale or an employee ownership transition it usually takes a little bit of time
0: and there's a note here to think about workers' interests what do you mean by that when when yeah. making that transition
1: yeah well this is another thing where I have kind of two answers to that so on the one hand I I have seen from you know a couple of decades of experience that when it's structured um, a certain way, a cooperative can enable any worker to be an owner. So it doesn't have to be a high bar. So for example, if an, if an owner wants to become a cooperative, their business to become a cooperative, and they're going to stay on and maybe transition from being the owner, which means they do a lot of everything and make most of the decisions, to being, say, the general manager or the CEO, so they'll, they'll continue running the business from a day-to-day basis. Then really, not that much needs to be changed. So if your if your um, employees are um, you know maybe unfamiliar or not really sure whether they're interested, it's it's important to have some interest among your employees to become a cooperative. But it may be that over time, as you find out what it's like to be a cooperative business, that people will become interested and join in. Um, so so you do need uh, some baseline level of interest among your employees. But I believe that most workers will become. Interested over time as they as they understand what it means to be part of a cooperative. The the flip side of that conversation, especially if you're a very small business, so I think you know Carolyn's business, it would not have made sense to transition it to a cooperative if Toto and Sarah, who were those original uh, co-owners together with Carolyn when it became a cooperative, if they hadn't been interested. So especially in a smaller company, you really need to have that core of people who want to understand and go through and provide leadership to that cooperative process and, you know, serve on the board and help educate their co-workers and and be founding worker owners. So depending on when the owner is willing to talk about a possible sale, some want to keep it close to their chest for a while. Others want to involve people really early on, which is we we encourage that if the owner is comfortable with it, but we don't insist on it because we know that there are a lot of factors that an owner has to think about. So we often do employee surveys or employee meetings and kind of educate folks and help them understand the process along the way.
0: Got it. Um, So one more quick break and we'll come back to talk about what the past five years, correct me if 2017 five years has been like for Carolyn, uh, how life Mm -hmm. is different today than it was say in 2016, if it's better or worse or whatever. And I also want to talk about the future of co-ops and what that might look like. Restaurants have been hit hard over the past few years, which means restaurant owners and staff have been working harder than Ever. trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend pop menu answering pop menu answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Within the pop menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and choose the voice your guests hear and even send follow up links via text message. Pop menu answering picks up your phone 24 7, 365 days a year, allowing you and your team to focus on what matters most. Prevent lost customers and impress your guests with pop menu answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get your $100 off for your first month and to learn more about PopMenu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. you're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at ww.sevenshifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We're back. And I am curious to know Carolyn. Uh, so you did this in 2017. You've been around since 2010, but for the past Mm -hmm. five years, you've been a co-op, a workers co-op. What's your life today? Like versus say back in 2015.
2: That's fair. It's very different. Um, well, right now I actually live in Portland, Oregon. I moved. Um, I'm still part of the business. Um, but uh, I wasn't supposed to be, and and uh, COVID COVID played a big role in that. So originally, when we became uh, when we transitioned to a cooperative, um, I actually did not want to leave, um, and I'm fully intended to stay as general manager for the foreseeable future, and that's how we structured it. Um, and then about a year in. Um, I had some family um, situations that um, made me kind of reevaluate that and think that I probably needed to step back from the business to spend a little more time um, doing other things. So um, I stepped back a little bit and we started to plan for <laughs> me to leave in 2020, um, and my husband was going to be retiring, and we figured we were we were planning a move to Portland. So um, I was going to spend uh, 2020 coming back and forth once a month to just up the ante on the training um, and really make sure every, everything was all set before I exited entirely. So we moved here in, in January of 2020, and then COVID hit. <laughs> so I did not go back and forth every month. Um, and we spent a lot of time on the phone, um, and I didn't leave. So now we've, we've managed to get this far and now I've, we've done away with the role of general manager. Um, and I'm essentially back of the house bookkeeper, um, doing all the, you know, website stuff and HR and payroll and all that stuff that nobody else wants to do. Um, while I'm training other people on all of those aspects as well, because the the time will come in the next year for me, for me to actually leave. Um, that is, so my role really is basically just mentor and training at this point. Um and that's fantastic. And and the fact that we were a co-op um when I had to make some personal decisions in my life made that possible. Um and and that it could have been kind of a disaster for the business if we hadn't become a cooperative. Yeah. So um and if um, if the staff already were not completely geared up to be independent and be running the business, handling all of the operations when COVID hit, and were able to just spin on a dime and and change the business um, basically overnight um, with an entirely new business model. Um, to weather COVID and they did, they absolutely did it fantastically. And, and I attribute that hundred percent to being a co-op. Yeah. Beautiful. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. So, so yeah, when you, it's incredible. So when you
0: transition out completely in a year, um, mm-hmm. you're still going to be a member technically, correct me if I'm wrong. I
2: won't at that point. I won't. I mean, I'm a member now, but I also don't work full time anymore. So my profit sharing um, basically is, is you based don't meet on my the criteria. My hours worked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not <the whole> time.
0: <laughs> so how does that, how is that in essence, a retirement plan? How are you making money? How, how is this? Are you, did you sell the business? I sold the business. The business. Sold the business. I so
2: sold the business to the cooperative.
0: So you're living off of the, um, the money that you sold to your employees.
2: Yeah. Okay, yeah. Got it. Yeah. That was, I mean, we, when we became a cooperative, I decided I had to decide on a sale price um, based on the value of the business and what I needed to get out of it. Um, and we did that, and we financed it. Um, I financed half of it, and we financed um, the other half uh, through a, a lender. And, and um, it, just like any sale would be, um, I didn't have to finance it, but it 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 you know the business paid me back just as they would any loan. But the um,
0: business has a loan, not Carol.
2: That's right. So the yes. business
0: takes on the responsibility of the loan. Your mm-hmm. co-owners are responsible for paying that loan back and you're taking yep. the business paid you out yep. basically is how it works. Yep. I just transferred yep. the money over to you. Got it.
2: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Just like any business y'all would be.
0: Got it. Um, yeah. I mean, congratulations.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's the only yeah, thing I'm allowed to
0: say, right? At this point, like, yeah, yeah,
2: that's a good. I mean, it really it worked. I mean, and it the the reason it worked, honestly, is education. I mean, it's not just like a magic wand or something. Um, it's constant education. Our uh, our worker owners understand the finances of the business. Um, and there's not a lot of regular businesses where you could where you could say that we have regular finance trainings. We review, we keep really excellent books. Um, It's not, if you're a business, if you're a restaurant that wants to become um, a worker-owned co-op to save your business, that's not a great plan. Um, Because it's not, I mean, the numbers are the numbers, no matter what. I mean, your business is still a business. Um, It's a great exit plan for an owner because it's hard to find a buyer, I'm um, most, I mean, I'm sure Hillary has the statistics on the tip of her tongue. I mean, as people are retiring, there's a lot more people who want to sell businesses than there are people who want to buy them.
1: Yeah, And yeah. <laughs> that's estimated that so, only about 20% yeah. of businesses that are listed for sale end up selling. Wow. So yeah. it's not as simple as like, you know, I'm just going to go out there and hire a broker and find the right person. Or um, I think that's a not very well-known fact. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So let's talk real quick before we say goodbye about the future of the restaurant industry and how co-ops could play into that. So um, earlier today, Carolyn, you were talking about how uh, people in this business model don't see their role as a job, but more of a career. And mm-hmm. w- one thing I've noticed in my journeys across the country, uh, studying different markets across the country, uh, successful markets, and Richmond comes to mind right now, Richmond, Virginia. And I I couldn't help but notice that the restaurant owners uh, in Richmond all seem to be collaborating with each other, where you might have three partners over here, uh, and then you might have four partners over here, but two of the partners that are over here are two of the partners that are over here. And like, you got this huge, like bush of like, it's not a family tree, but it's like this bush that keeps on coming back like a family bush, of like restaurant owners and operators and everybody collaborates. And it's this culture of like, it's not me versus you. It's us. And let's create opportunity for each other. and, I'm really good in the back of house. You're a creative, you know, bar uh, mixologist. Let me focus on the the menu in the front of house and you focus on the cocktail menu and they just kind of recognize the strengths of each other. And I see co-ops fitting this model really well because now you can have somebody who is a member and say they're a pastry chef, right? That's, that's mm-hmm. a, a, an important role that you could be a pastry chef for five restaurants. If you have a co- your own personal commissary, Right. You know what I'm saying? And then now you remember. I, I I just see there's a way for us to, to split up responsibilities and kind of see ourselves as a business, an individual business. And how can we contribute to the greater community of business? And how can we slice up these businesses in a way where maybe I'm a pastry chef, but now I have I'm the pastry chef for five restaurants and I have shares of five different restaurants. Is this? Where am I going with this? What do you guys think? I,
2: I, I could see, I mean, that's I think there's a lot of exciting stuff coming out of COVID and and the and the 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 environment just the just the economic environment. Um but in some ways what you're talking about is um is consolidation. Um right? Um so that that I, I think you can see it from from several ways. But Maybe look at it also from the perspective of the line cook um, or, you know, the dishwasher, right. Um, Sometimes I, just to, just to be sort of devil's advocate, sometimes people just want a job, you know? Um, So there's room for that as well in, um, in a worker cooperative, you know, maybe the dishwasher just wants to be a dishwasher or maybe the line cook just wants to be a line cook. Um, It's nice to have, um, I think it's really important to be able to fill both of those, um, both of those roles. Um, to have the innovation for the for the actual business models, I think that that could fit. Um, and I think any any of those business structures can fit in a worker owned um, economic model or financial model for the business. Um, yes. But you could do that. You could create. What you're talking about, um, you know, with being a pastry chef and work for a bunch of different um, restaurants, um, you could create that in a worker cooperative situation. You could create it in a unionized situation. You could create that um, in just a bunch of sole proprietors situations, right? Um, but I think you probably would want to be careful of sort of gigifying the the um, you know the profession in that way too. Um, so I, I, but but I, I see the need for innovation and changing how um, restaurants respond, just to the economy. As you know, the the basic um, formulas that people use when figuring out their budgets just don't hold anymore.
1: Yeah. Cost of goods
2: and labor expense and overhead are not, you know, all of those percentages are rising and it has to come from somewhere. Yeah. So we need to have innovation um, in the business models, but how that profit um, is distributed and how, um, how the ownership and the governance happens, those things can be handled um those can worker ownership applies um, no matter what the actual business model is, whatever the operational structure is. Yeah.
1: And one of the things I love about, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a, an ownership geek and a cooperative geek. Mm -hmm. So when I go into a restaurant, I always want to ask, like, who owns this place? And and, and plus, I think small business owners and business owners are fascinating people. I like to learn about them and their business journeys. Um, but nobody asks that. It's almost inappropriate to ask it in some cases. So I I think probably what, um, what Carolyn is saying and what, what I'd like to say is that the, the restaurant industry has been going through, um, massive shifts you know, thrust on it by COVID. And I'm sure we've lost, I know we've lost a lot of great independent small restaurants that we all knew and loved. And we've also seen, as Carolyn said, consolidation, but also a lot of innovation. And I think what we would love for viewers to take away is um, that ownership needs to be part of the innovation and that that can and should include people who don't have the capital to to be an investor, to bring tens of thousands of dollars or more um, to the table to, to co-own something with a small number of folks that, that there are ways that the cooperative model, whether it's through like a, a marketing co-op or a a cooperative of small businesses that work together, which I think is a little bit where you were headed, Eric, you know, Mm -hmm. I could have my pastry chef and I could be in in a cooperative where we would work on different businesses together.
0: Yeah. I mean the thought process, say say you're a restaurant tour, right? And you own five restaurants and what if you made all of your businesses co-ops and Mm -hmm. the way that you attract on your, your talent, your creatives, the, is by saying, Hey, like you're going to be the executive chef, but not only, am I going to pay you a salary? I'm also going to give you equity in these businesses for you. Yeah. Uh, I, I just feel like, I don't know if I'm using the right words to explain it or not, or, or, or if that would be make sense in from what we discussed today. But I, I just feel like, I don't know. There, there's just so much more possibility to attract onto yourself better talent. If you're willing to give up some Piece of the business or stake in the business, and a lot of people when when I say that they just cringe. They're like, I don't like the idea of giving up equity. I don't think it's necessary to give up equity. <laughs> right. um, but is there a yeah. way to do it that protects you and also provides incentive? And I mean, when you look at the executive role, if it's done right, the executive chef role, if it's done right, they're not in there executing the meal every day. They're the creative element. They're they're teaching. They're coaching. You can right. you can do that for multiple concepts. And they don't even have to be a part of the same restaurant group. But if you just kind of understand that, like, listen, like I'm a, I am a, I think you're going to see a lot of robots replace the line of cooks and the, and the dishwashers because of all mm-hmm. the points you pointed out earlier with the rise of costs and the kind of people that are going to have a foothold are the, the people who create who, and that's what robots aren't going to replace right away is the creative yeah. element. And I think that if you recognize yourself and you see that value in yourself as a creator, um, then that's that intellectual property, I kind of feel like I don't know, does that play into employee ownership or
1: yeah, you know, the, the intellectual- I, I think it can. And I think the the additional comment someone like like me will always make is like, well, and also consider the folks who are fixing the robots or mm-hmm. read back that human element, you know, who are serving if you need a human server. And I hope you will. I I saw a headline the other day that said, why do people hate self-checkout in the grocery <laughs> store? So we've had that for 10 or 15 years now, right? Yeah. And depends on the day for me. Sometimes I love it, sometimes I hate it, but mostly I prefer to go to the, the person who I can say hi to and who's going to know how to fix it, and I don't have to wait for the person to come fix it when it goes wrong on me. So I, I'm sure you're absolutely right that there will be a lot of automation and robots coming in into the the restaurant industry, but we'll still need people. So let's let's include ways that everybody human being can share in that ownership um, and i do want to just share the phrase that my my colleague evan edwards likes to say um, recruit retain reward so mm-hmm. before covid we were talking getting the message out about employee ownership primarily about exit plans and longevity and legacy and success of the business in the long term now we're really emphasizing that employee ownership is a way to recruit more employees yes. to retain them and to reward them Um, And again, we've talked about ESOPs, we've talked about employer ownership trusts, we've talked about worker co-ops, we've talked about partial employee ownership or full employee ownership, all those options are there. And so any of the scenarios you've just mentioned could incorporate broader ownership with with the folks they work with. So that's what we'd love to see people consider. And I do think the industry needs needs new ways to make this very challenging and also very creative, you know, work that people do in restaurants but it's it's frontline work. It was it was essential work in a lot of ways for um, during COVID, and it was risky work too. You know, people were exposed to health risks that that people like me sitting at our computers were not exposed to. Um, so we're going to need to give people more more rewards and more um, opportunities. And I think employee ownership is one way to do that.
0: Ladies, thank you so much. I've loved today's conversation. And as, is there anything we did not get out that you're hoping would come out of today's conversation? Now's the time to get it out.
2: No? I loved, I loved our conversation I yeah. feel like it we really um, we really hit all the different um, levels of, of, of possibilities for ownership and I, I love your vision and um, the excitement about the industry Thank and- you.
0: Yeah. I appreciate wow. that. Well, I want to make sure we echo how we can connect with you. So, if we enjoyed today's conversation, we've been interested in some type of more equitable business model like a co-op, like an east. I mean, we're here to talk about worker co ops So, like if you're interested in worker co-ops, how can we connect with you? What's the best way to connect? Yeah.
1: Contacting Project Equity. Our website is project-equity.org. And you can book a free consultation with us. You can also feel free to reach out to me, Hillary with one L at project dash equity.org. All right.
0: And this is episode nine hundred and eleven. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash uh, nine eleven. and did you want to live with some contact information as well, Carolyn? Sorry, I didn't mean to
2: Sure. Oh, sure. Well, um Niles Pie's website is uh dot com. Um, we have a little about us page on there, so you can you can read some of our history. Um and if people want to reach out to me, that's that's great too. I'm Carolyn C A R O L Y N at Nilespie.com. And I love talking co-ops. Awesome.
0: Again, episode nine hundred and eleven. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash nine one one. And uh it sounds like there's an emergency right now. (laughs) I didn't I didn't didn't plan that. Hope you guys don't mind being episode nine one one. Uh so it's memorable. (laughs) Yeah. Um (laughs) we can't say goodbye without me asking who do you respect and admire who you believe is doing co-ops really well. Obviously we have Carolyn here today. She was able to speak to it, but who else is just crushing it in the co-op, the workers co-op vertical that I need to get on the show to hear their story and to hear about how they're doing this.
1: I I'd, I'd encourage you to talk to the folks at main street Phoenix. Um, and oh. Jason Weiner is one of the people who founded that organization. They are looking to, help rescue struggling restaurants or ones that are thriving, but would like to become employee owned and they're mm-hmm. positioned to inquire, uh, acquire and resurrect, um, main street restaurants as, um, worker cooperatives. No, so Jason, uh, Jason Weiner would be terrific.
0: And the name of the business,
1: uh, main street, Phoenix,
0: main street, Phoenix. Beautiful. And did you have somebody that you want to recommend
2: Carolyn? Sure. Um, in the food world, absolutely, Arizmendi bakeries, um, are they're huge and well known in in the Bay Area. Um,
0: Those Arizm Arizmendis.
2: Arizmendi Arizmendi A-I-A-R-I-Z-M-E-N-D-I. <laughs>
0: Look out, Jason and eras. I'm coming after you guys. I'd love to get you on the show. And uh, just, I can't say thank you enough for taking the time to share your knowledge and your your expertise and your stories. Uh, there is no questioning; you're both unstoppable.
1: <laughs> As are you, Eric. Thank, thank you for guys. what you're doing for the yeah. and for this great conversation. The
0: pleasure's mine. Thank you, ladies there's another episode wrapped up here at restaurant unstoppable special thanks to our guests today hillary abel and carolyn burke for joining me and for diving deep into the world of co-ops uh this is something this is a business model i'm really interested in uh i think it's a great way to flatten the hierarchy to uh, spread out the wealth to create uh to build back the middle class i don't know I just think this is something we should look into and i want to learn more and the reason why i recorded today's episode is because somebody reached out to me asking to get somebody on the show to speak to uh co-ops and honestly it was something i've been wanting to do as well but i'm paying attention to you my listeners if there's something you need if there's a conversation you need to have on the show and i haven't had it like reach out to me let me know i'm here to serve you i pay attention not so much to all the people who reach out to me who have a product and service they want to spin in front of you guys, but my listeners absolutely reach out to me. I am paying attention to you guys. I, I want to serve you. So uh, great stuff. Lots of things happening at Restaurant Unstoppable right now. Uh, if you guys did not hear about our YouTube channel, head over to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable. We're putting a lot of work over there right now into growing that into a kind of and I want to say like, the, the focus is always going to be Restaurant Unstoppable podcast. That's our main focus. Uh, but we're traveling on site to capture these interviews. And there's so much opportunity on the table. I'm trying to surround myself with a team of videographers and people to help me capture this. But it's not going to be cheap. I need more help. So I'm trying to find a road trip sponsor. Somebody to have exclusive video, uh, I guess, uh, exclusivity over our video content. And uh, the more subscribers we have, the the more support i'll be able to get so head over to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable subscribe to our channel and thank you in advance and like always you can support me by supporting our sponsors using our affiliate links and sharing this podcast with everybody and anybody you know aspiring to be great so as you're listening to this i am in bend oregon and i am actually i'm probably somewhere in the middle of the country and there's a good chance i'm actually in indiana because uh, i don't know if you remember kristen barnett the last episode that went live uh she called out martha hoover and martha is based in indiana and i actually was able to connect and we're gonna get her on the show so things are happening this is the future of restaurant unstoppable special thanks for sumadre podcast jared parisi for the editing copy for this episode and uh, that's it for today guys until next time peace out